you got problems that you ought to be concerned with Moolah. you don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it you're a freak with a dark shameful secret but you're not the only one get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun now your healing has begun it's bad with money with gabby done hello it's me again gabby done you should know that by the sound of my voice Last week, we tackled the topic of marijuana, which is a plant that's grown by farmers. And this week, we're going to take a look at farmers who grow the food we all eat. I love farmers. I know a lot of lesbian farmers. That's a thing. Look into it. It's pretty great. Like more than one. Like I know more than one lesbian farmer. And they all have really cool Instagrams. (laughs) But okay. But besides that, why farmers, Gabby? Well, it's not just because they look sexy in their workwear, which they do. It's also because they provide our country with its food, and that's no small feat. But I also came across this stat that I just couldn't get out of my head. Farming is the second whitest profession in the U.S. The whitest, by the way, is veterinarians. So think about that. And that's so weird, especially when you think of all the people of color who do the hard work of farming in this country. And yet they aren't farm owners, so they don't get counted. Speaking of owning farms... Fewer than 1% of America's farms are owned by black people. And this is worse than the numbers from almost 100 years ago. In 1920, 14% of farms were owned by black people. This is the opposite of progress. But if you're not a farmer or interested in getting involved in agriculture, this still affects you. Because farming is just one part of the food system. And you guessed it. The food system is just another system in our country that's set up to treat people differently based on their race or class or where they live. The crazy thing is, basically everyone eats food. It's this thing that could be a great equalizer. So in this episode, I want to pull apart the structural ways that the food system is set up to divide us. And we're going to keep farming in the forefront. Because unless you're going to the farmer's market, you might not really know who's doing the hard work that makes your meals possible. You might not even know if your food is coming from this country. Friends, we're going to learn all about it right after the break. Welcome back. First up, Malik Yakini, the executive director of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network, DBCFSN for short. He peels back the curtain on the food system, exposing all the parts that make it work and the history that makes it so unequal. There's steps in the food system like the the growers. You know, there's people who are actually planting seeds in the ground and tending to those seeds. And then we have farm workers who often come in and harvest uh, that food. Uh, most farmers are not selling directly to customers. They're selling to aggregators, uh, companies that get goods from a number of farmers. For example, corn. Right. You know, hundreds of farmers might sell their corn to this one aggregator who then sells it to large manufacturers or distributors. And so m- most food in this country ends up uh, as an ingredient and some food-like substance that has many ingredients in it because that's really where the majority of the money is within the food system. You know, we do have fruits and vegetables, which interestingly, the USDA calls specialty crops that, um, you know, some farmers are growing and selling also to wholesalers that, who then sell them to, you know, to markets and what have you. Um, so we have the grower, we have the, perhaps the aggregator, the distributor, we have the retail outlet where the consumer comes to buy the food. Mm-hmm. Then we have the consumer, him or herself, who actually buys that food and prepares it for his or her family. And then we have what we call the post-consumption part of the food system. 
there's something that happens to that waste. If you peel a banana and you have a banana peel or you cut the stem off of some collard greens, then something has to happen to that waste. Mm -hmm. And so that's also part of the food system. And in more progressive places, people are recycling that food waste into compost that then goes right back into the food system in the form of this nutrient-dense substance we call uh, humus that goes into the soil to make the soil more fertile. So that's what we're referring to when we talk about the food system. So farming is the second whitest job in America. Um, What are some of the things that have contributed to that? Well, I want to maybe push back against that a little bit. I did read, you know, an article last week that talked about that. And I guess part of it it is determined by what you consider to be farming. Mm. So if you're talking about the people who own large scale farms, that is probably true. If you're talking about the people who are actually doing the work on the farms, that probably is not true. So a lot of times people make a distinction between farmers and farm workers. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, I'll just say this, that increasingly uh, what we're seeing is a new crop of farmers that's developing throughout the country, particularly in urban areas. And many of those new farmers are black and brown people. Why is it important for the food system to diversify? Like what effects will that have? Well, so first of all, our organization looks at this concept of food justice that is creating a food system which serves people in a just and equitable way, regardless of their race, regardless of their uh, income. Um, When we look at that, we realize that we have to look at that within the context of injustice in American society in general. Mm -hmm. And so we see land ownership in the United States particularly farmland ownership, uh, largely in the hand of whites and mostly white men. So about 97% of the farmland in the United States is owned by whites and about 3% is owned, if we were to look collectively at the amount of farmland owned by blacks, by Latinx people and by uh, so-called Native Americans, combined, we would own about 3% of the farmland. Mm -hmm. And so really land is the basis of power and land is the basis of generation of wealth. And so that's one of the huge factors in creating inequity land ownership within the United States. My producer saw you speak at the Brooklyn Botanical Gardens a few weeks back, and she was struck by a story about one of your recent ancestors uh, losing his land. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So you're referring to my great-grandfather, Sandy Shepherd Odom, who was born in 1863, He was born in Mississippi and then made his way to Crittenden County, Arkansas, where in the uh, early 1880s, he was elected to the Arkansas State Legislature. He became assistant editor of a newspaper in his town, and he was a farmer. And there were many blacks in positions of leadership in that town. So by 1887, many of the white people of that town armed themselves and ran the black leadership out of town at gunpoint. And the American Missionary Society uh, has an account, a contemporary account that was written when this happened of the incident. And it it mentioned my grandfather by name and talked about the fact that he tried to resist for a while, but then decided that in order to save himself, his wife and his family, to save their lives, that it would be best for him to leave this land. And so uh, he was banished. There are dozens of documented instances of black people being separated by their, from their land by violence in the United States. 
And of course, the impact of those historical events uh, impacts where we are today. So as I was mentioning uh, at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, I often think about how my own life might have been different and the life of my family had might have been different had my grandfather not been forcibly separated from his land. So we often think about representation in terms of media, but what does representation mean in the food system? Well, it, it's very important. Uh, so African-Americans have a particular challenge, and that is that many of us view agriculture through the lens of enslavement and sharecropping, these uh, historical experiences that really brought us to the Western Hemisphere for the most mm -hmm. part. And so many African-Americans have an aversion to agricultural work. And so the more that African-Americans and other uh, kind of marginalized ethnic groups can see themselves represented within the food system, the more it kind of gives us permission to participate more fully in it. So if we show more black farmers, both rural and urban farmers, we show more women farmers, we show more uh, urban farmers, and we make that part of the narrative of how food is produced in the United States, then it gives examples for younger black people to aspire to. And it says to them that this is OK for you to participate in the food system. Yeah. Um, DBCF SN has programs that educate kids. So what is the importance of starting there, too, in terms of like representation? At the beginning of my activism, we were very naive and we thought that in the next two or three years, there was going to be some massive shift in the power relationships in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so now being older, more seasoned and wiser, myself and many others realize that this is not only a protracted struggle, but it's an intergenerational struggle. Mm -hmm. And so if our movement for fairness and justice and equity is to be sustainable, then we have to intentionally nurture young people who are going to be change agents. And so that's why it's very important that we have youth programs that reach out to young people, make them aware of the various aspects of the food system, and make them aware that they're not just passive participants in it, but they can be active shapers of the food system in their own communities. Yes, exactly. Um, can you tell me a bit about food security and food sovereignty? Food security is generally defined, community food security, is generally defined as a condition that exists when all the members of a community at all times have adequate amounts of culturally appropriate food. Uh, food sovereignty goes beyond that and really speaks to uh, nations and communities having control of the whole food system that provides their food. And that includes determining what types of foods are grown, how those foods are produced, uh, making sure that the people who are growing and producing those foods are helping to shape the food system. It has to do with the relationship to the land and making sure that the food is grown in sustainable ways. So it goes beyond food security. So what would you like to see happen in other states or nationally? Well, to tell you the truth, I, I really don't have much confidence in the corporate sector. You know, <laughs> I, I would hope that the corporate sector uh, begins to act in a more responsible manner. But I think that most of that sector is hopelessly caught in the logic of capitalism and so while I hope that there are some reforms in the corporate sector, I really don't think that it's wise for the most marginalized and oppressed people to really spend our time trying to make that happen. I think we would be better served by creating the mechanisms in our own communities to serve ourselves. And I think the most effective mechanism we can create in regard to food would be co-ops, 
businesses that are collectively owned and where we can have uh, broad ownership within communities. We can find ways to circulate that wealth within our own communities and we can break this cycle of extraction of wealth from our communities. So we, we like to see definitely uh, many more food co-ops. We like to see much more agriculture happening both in urban areas and rural areas on small scales that families, communities, churches, nonprofit organizations can control to begin to even uh, grow small percentages of the produce that we consume. Because even in Detroit, for example, uh, providing 10% of the produce that's consumed in the city would instantly inject millions of dollars into the local economy. Mm -hmm. So in fact, sometimes people say that food is the first economy of any society. And so we'd like to see a mechanism set up in communities that capture some of that food dollar, keep it circulating locally and specifically within the communities that are most marginalized by race, class uh, and other forms of inequity in American society. So maybe you're new to the idea of the food system. I, I certainly was. And like a lot of the systems here in this country, the food system is just as racist and sexist and generally flawed as you might expect. For one, black farmers have a much harder time getting government grants and loans. Farmers rely on this money to help buy land, crops, livestock, tools, basically the things a farmer would need to do their job. In a pretty huge lawsuit back in the 1990s, black farmers got together and sued the USDA for discriminatory lending practices. Farmers were getting denied or their approvals were so delayed into the growing season that it had a huge economic impact. As a result of the lawsuit, the government settled, paying restitution back to those claimants. But even as recent as 2013, an article in The Atlantic claims that black farmers receive about one third or less of the funding other farmers receive. And guys, it doesn't end there. Obviously, you can see that there's more to this show. Amani Awugbala is the assistant program director at Soul Fire Farm. Soulfire is based in upstate New York and runs a farmer immersion program specifically for Black and Latinx people. Amani says that from the consumer side, the effects manifest as something called food apartheid. People sometimes refer to like the segregation and other um, like instances of racism and classism that show up in the food system as like food desert situation, meaning you can't get anything that is like natural um, and maybe like highly nutritious unless. And that's also affordable in your neighborhood unless you have uh, a car or other kinds of resources like an endless amount of time in order to be able to go to a different supermarket outside of your neighborhood. But you might have an abundance of like poor quality food options in terms of poor quality, in terms of nutritious, like, you know, nutritious value. And so you might have like McDonald's, Chicken Spot, Taco Bell, um, all of those things right next to each other. You might have corner stores and these stores or bodegas or delis might are supposed to have about before the the current pres presidential administration uh, made the changes recently, they were supposed to have at least seven different options of seven vegetables and like fruit for folks to buy at their local neighborhoods and most of the neighborhoods where we are doing work in or we're serving food to or that we work with folks across the country they don't have even that many options and now the requirement has been lowered to three and so which is even more than I've seen in some stores and so 
you get this situation where folks, certain folks just don't have access to good food and we don't think about it a lot because it's either you come up in a neighborhood like that or it's not questioned. Our neighborhoods are so segregated in our country um, or you or you don't and you don't know about it. So I think that's a bit of it. And a lot of this people feel like, oh, well, this is just the way things are or it just happen to have been or maybe like supermarkets don't think that low income communities will be a good place to build. But actually, this entire legacy of racism that's connected to like manifest destiny and the first time uh, European colonizers came to this country that is led and continued to lead to the situation that we have nowadays with I don't have a good quality supermarket in my neighborhood. Did you hear the part in there about the government loosening requirements for how many fresh fruits and vegetables are available? Turns out that's not the only pretty sinister thing the government is doing. And in the food system, it affects farm workers, farm owners, and who can even own farms to begin with. We're going to talk to Amani more about that and what her organization is doing to shift to this reality right after the break. We are back with Amani Alugbala from Soul Fire Farm. The farmer immersion program, like I read the article about it. It sounded so beautiful. I don't know if you could distill or explain like what it's like to go through the program, but it just, it just sounded like so wonderful and, and something that I don't think people think about food or, or the earth in terms of like inequality. It's hard to describe like other than like, it's like a black healing village that Mm -hmm. uh, spiritual activism is deep in it. And just a a reclamation that for me was life changing is the reason, be be part of the reason why I'm a part of Soul Fire right now. I came to the immersion and it changed my life. It was about six days living on farm. Um, with folks of color and just like learning about everything from soil to like nutritious meal preparation and like this history that most of us don't get taught in school about the ways that like slavery and mass incarceration and uh, an abundant and the fact that McDonald's advertises like to 200 plus like commercials to black kids uh, mm-hmm. every year, like all these things are connected. And also it's not, it doesn't have to just be feel burdensome or hopeless or um, we can question why we like so many folks of color have this negative idea about returning to land or um, making a living on land. And it was just incredible. It just, it was eye-opening and also electrifying and styling. And we left with action steps and accountability plans and a, a network building in a sense of hope and just learning about all of these models and icons who had come before us, who had done mm-hmm. these things that we hadn't known about before. Um, we are also using land to, to heal from racial trauma. Like folks have sometimes come to the land and like see their fellow immersion folks or participants in other programs and can sometimes have a really visceral negative reaction and like be replaying or reliving traumas that they're carrying genetically in ways yeah. that they've never actually even been, you know, enslaved in the ways that ancestors have, but going back there. And so we want to change the idea that the land is the 
is the negative, the land is the trauma, and, and that it is instead like a traumatic history that we can heal from and move forward from. And yeah, and so like we, we have these programs and then graduates, they get ongoing mentorship to like access resources and land and trainings and are also invited to be a part of the speaker collective so that they can just amplify their own voices in the food system. That's, re- that's so beautiful. No, I love it. So you're talking about like getting started in farming, having sort of barriers is, is the, I mean, is it like, is it everything? What are the monetary issues? Like land isn't cheap. Loans are sort of a bias system. Like, is it, is it just kind of all these barriers that you think like marginalized people see and go, well, I can't get involved in that. Like, what are some of the, the barriers? Yeah. Like me, like having the money to get land because most of is inherited and so if folks are already coming from a history where they're um like yeah they didn't have the opportunity to build up any kind of wealth it's probably not going to have any family wealth to really be passing down um and so you know that's one piece of it as well as access to support and so it's still shown statistically that you know, white folks are more likely to get loans and other kinds of support, even for projects that are happening in predominantly black neighborhoods where people are being said to be serving black communities as opposed to working in collaboration with black communities or black folks or being a part of communities. And so like, okay, yeah, land is expensive. How are you going to get it? But beyond that, um, sometimes it's education. And so maybe folks do get some land but, like, nobody ever gave them any kind of financial, I mean, yeah, like, financial education around how to maintain and create and sustain well, well-being for yourself and your family as a farmer. Um, I think most farmers in our country live at or under the poverty level as it is. And mm-hmm. so we're talking about, like, adding on um, in addition to just, like, racial oppression, there's that class piece and then... I'm thinking about, you know, when you're learning about farming and you're learning like from farmers, it's not usually going to be people that look like you. It's right. um, like, yeah, you're like a woman or a gender non-conforming person of color. So like that's why we need more short-term, close-to-home training opportunities for farmers. Like what, what sort of changes do, would you like to see in the, the food and farming system? Are there like policies or regulations or things that could that could happen to like expand access to, like you said, like good, good food and, and sort of make the food system more just, um, because it is like, it is like fascinating what you said about, you know, you don't think about the ways in which the food system is a class system too. There's, I feel like there's policy steps to all of it, but at the heart of it, it's like a recognition of where things are, what things are, the state of the food system, the history of it. And then, all of this wraparound approach to it because I don't want to just make it a thing that's about uh, like governmental interventions. I think it's about what you and I are doing right now, just like people to people understanding of how things really are. And so the four things I imagine would be, I guess, like respecting, upholding, affirming, fighting for like everyone's right to land. And so specifically um, like, uh, like black farmers who are having lost almost all of the land, like reparations 
for past harm that would be like the one step and the respect and the honoring of the people who are actually growing our food. And so the U.S., like I said, it doesn't provide a living wage or health care or labor protections to farm workers who are coming in from other countries. And so like we, or like, yeah, other, or just other folks in general, because I think farm workers, even who are born here, have a different minimum wage. And so just updating those laws and ending the exploitation of agricultural workers, supporting them, um, eliminating food apartheid will be another thing. And I think that there are like a lot of policies that can uh, work towards that, but really ones that focused on community control and yeah, people deciding what is going to happen in their communities. Like in like what you're talking about, like sort of take, you know, taking it back, taking back the idea of working on the land, taking back the stuff that was kind of like forced on you guys and then, and then taken away from you summarily. Um, I know that that you're talking about, there's like a a database, a, a reparations database at Soul Fire um, what successes have you seen from that? History is so important because, you know, we, we, get, we get told this story uh, about black people being forced to work on the land. But, like, I, I feel like there's, you're supposed to fill in the, the gaps about why. Like, oh, but maybe because black people were seen as, like, submissive or black people were easily kidnapped. I don't know. But actually, one thing I learned in this work and since coming to Soul Fire was how like black folks were specifically taken for their agricultural skill and knowledge. And so one big thing that like um, I, I talk a lot about is just about all these inventions, so many things that we talk about, like permaculture or CSA, community supported agricultures, or um, like land trusts. All these things uh, started with black folks, crop, crop rotation, soil diversity, all these things. And then successes about reparations. Uh, yeah, there's been some really awesome things. Folks post on this website about like the thing. There's a post of all these different farms and growers across the country and what their needs are. And if there are people who can help meet those needs, they make the connection and they make the transition. Yeah. And so people have already given up lands and supported other kinds of projects that people are doing. So in this conversation with Amani, she brought up one point that I thought was interesting. I mean, she brought up a lot of interesting points, but making sure there was education available to people where they are. And while we think of farming as a rural thing, it's not obviously isolated out there in the country. To learn more about that, we're going to talk to Onika Abraham, the executive director of Farm School NYC and co-founder of Black Urban Growers Network after the break. We're back with Onika Abraham to hear more about her own connections to the food system and how Farm School is teaching urban farmers. So Farm School was created as a collective vision of this group of farmers and advocates and teachers and learners who came together and were looking at New York City and all of the things that were going on at the time. So this was around 2005, 6, 7. And they saw most of them were living and working in communities of color uh, or communities that were pretty marginalized economically, poor communities. Mm -hmm. And they were working from a, a number of different perspectives. 
And many of those perspectives were requiring them to think about these communities as lacking all the things that they didn't have. They had, and this is when we first started talking about the term food deserts. And we say, oh, they're, mm-hmm. New York City is riddled with food deserts. There's so, I mean, all this lack of access to healthy foods, all of this lack of access to healthcare systems. No one's got jobs there. There's lack of jobs, right? Lack, 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 lack. Everything mm-hmm. was about lack. And so these folks came together and they were like, you know what? I live in this community, and we actually have a lot of resources here. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them were from a farming background and were really concerned about health and wellness in their communities. And they saw that there were so many community gardens in the city, so much space for growing, um, so many people already doing it, and a real love and yearning from people who were saying, we want to know more. We want to share our experiences with um, tending and cultivating our communities. And we want to do it. We, there's no place right now where there's like a comprehensive professional level training program for people who want to learn how to farm in a sustainable way without chemicals, without agribusiness. Um, farm school, all these people came together. They, they thought of this idea for a school and they just started building it. Um, they applied for a couple of grants and even before they got any money from, or validation from foundations, they'd already developed a full curriculum certificate program where people can um, get take 20 courses um, in everything from irrigation to integrated pest management to food justice, which is a foundational course for us, really understanding how we got to this point in terms mm-hmm. of um, racial inequities and disparities in our community and how that affects what we eat. Um, and they created this whole curriculum. And they're like, we're just going to do this. That's what's going to happen. And they created the school from scratch. And then um, the USDA caught up and said, this sounds like a really great idea. We'd love to <laughs> invest in this program. And we got a, a great grant um, from the Beginning Farmer and Rancher Development Program mm-hmm. in 2010. And uh, since then, we've had uh, about 20 students coming through our certificate programs per year. And then um, many other dozens of folks that have come through just taking an individual course here and there, mm-hmm. um, wanting to check in and, and want, you know, learn specific skills. Do they all come with different um, abilities at the start? Yeah, they sure do. So we ask people to have some familiarity with gardening and farming before they come to farm school, but there's mm-hmm. not a requirement that you've grown a full season, um, you know, in a community garden or on a farm or anything. And the hope is that they'll go on to like keep doing it and work with each other and keep doing urban farming in New York City. The hope for us is that they want to move the food system forward in a way that is equitable and fair to all of the people involved and the planet itself. So I think people can do that in a lot of ways. There are some folks that uh, have have always wanted to work in policy, you know, or currently mm. work in policy work, um, but didn't have a really good sense of what a farmer's day-to-day experience is like, what it takes to be a small farmer, although they have some input on programs that impact them. So that was kind of like why they wanted to come to farm school was to get to know some people who were actually doing this. Um, and so from our perspective at farm school, yes, we definitely want people to farm. We want people to be growing food. For our mission overall, we're really looking is to have an impact on the food system and create something that is more fair and more just for people at every step of that system, um, from the people who are owners and operators of farms, the people who are working as undocumented people on farms, mm-hmm. to the folks that are doing kind of, you know, the interim distribution, and for us as consumers at all levels of the, you know, economic spectrum. We want fair food for all. And that's really our goal at farm school. And this is like, you're actually keeping it as local as possible. Is that like a huge part of it? 
I think that there's a lot of uh, power in doing that. Mm -hmm. So part of our mission is to really build self-reliant communities. And part of that is making sure those communities can feed themselves without having to depend on an outside system or a charity model where people are um, going to food banks and, and, you know, receiving food for free. Although I'm not downing that as a stopgap measure when people are Mm -hmm. hungry and really need that. Um, But to invest in people so that they have the power of their own dollar stays in their community, which I think is very important in communities of color and poorer communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that is really, really important. And I think from a health perspective, just really being able to have a relationship with your grower and know the practices that they're doing um, is that level of transparency is really only possible on a local level. It's not possible in the kind of food system that we've built, you know, globally these days. You don't know what's going on with what you've bought at Walmart. Uh, it's, it's just impossible in this kind mm-hmm. of, you know, that kind of scale. So um, really being able to build those relationships with local growers, I think, um, just blows through a lot of that uncertainty about where our food comes from and what is actually in it. Mm-hmm. How did you get involved in, in working with farm school, but also like more generally with agriculture and the food system? Like what brought you to that? So I was born and raised, raised here in New York City, um, very much a city girl. But both of my parents grew up on farms, um, an ocean apart, but still very similar in a lot of ways. My mother was born and raised in Alabama, and as, as a farm girl, my, my grandfather grew rural co- crops like cotton and corn and soy. Mm-hmm. And um, my father's father uh, was a farmer in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, growing um, goats. Um, so I, they both came to New York um, really kind of uh, looking for opportunity, like so many people do when they come to New York City. Um, but they brought with them this real love and reverence for, um, for farming and for farmers, um, mm-hmm. and also a real respect for what it takes to provide for yourself and your family um, by growing food. My grandma grew every single thing that they ate in Alabama. Um, my mom said everything that they ate, they grew with the exception of corn, which they sold and they bought in. Um, and I think wheat. She said also they didn't grow wheat and they bought that in. But everything else, you know, from meat to plant, they grew and fed themselves. And that gave them a real sense of um, autonomy and Mm -hmm. self-reliance. And I really think that it was part of the reason why they felt my mom, although she grew up, you know, as a child in 1940s and 50s in Alabama as a black girl, um, you know, really didn't have a whole lot of stories about horrible racism. And I couldn't really understand why, (laughs) because Mm. everything I'd ever heard about Alabama during the segregated South and Jim Crow days was just filled with horrific racism. I think part of that is her point of view as a child. But I think another part of that is just really feeling this great sense of pride and self-reliance and not needing to depend on the racist system that was, you know, existing and around her. Um, She knew that she could feed herself and her family were feeding each other in their community and they didn't have to be bothered with, you know, going to the store and and having to go through that really dehumanizing process of Mm -hmm. being a young black person in the South. So um, that is a really long thing I just said. No, but it makes it like explains so much. It makes so much sense. Um, Can you explain how urban farming is not a new fad? I saw in a video you were talking about, you know, how um, people are like, oh, this is a hipster thing. This is a fad thing. This is like what, you know, I think it's seen as like a white people thing. And 
So can you explain how it's kind of just an extension of things that have been going on for a long time now? Yes. One of the biggest misconceptions, I think, when I look at the dominant media portrayal of urban farming is that it is a new, trendy thing. And it may be trendy, but it's certainly not new. Mm -hmm. There are um, a lot of really deep history from Victory Gardens on back of people growing food in communities. And mostly this was driven by people of color and people from immigrant communities, people who needed the food. And we're not Mm -hmm. doing this necessarily because they thought it was cute or trendy, um, but they did it because they knew that it was a way to make sure no matter what kind of discrimination or bias they were experiencing in the working world and the industrial, you know, labor market that they'd usually move to a city to be a part of. They knew that they would be able to feed their family um, by doing this. Um, And also, they knew that they would be able to feed the family the foods that they had traditionally and culturally had grown um, and loved and weren't able to find in a local market. So that's a really deep part of our history. You know, when you talk about um, immigrants and migrants in this country, bringing the seeds that were nourishing their parents and their grandparents and and so on and were critical to the culture of their lives. Yeah, so can you talk about the the landscape of urban farming in New York City and I guess how it compares to elsewhere? So um, what I know of urban agriculture is that it is as varied as the cities that it, you find it in, and it takes on the flavor and the personality of those cities as well. Um, so in New York, and I would say in different parts of New York, it looks so different, right? So I think about when I'm in the Bronx and the different plants that they grow there and the ways that they grow there, which are um, mostly in communal plots um, as opposed to individual plots, which many community gardens have, and people kind of come in. They have their own space and they grow what they want. Um, I think what is trendier now Mm -hmm. is certainly more the commercialization of urban agriculture. Also, not a new thing, uh, but there are so many more commercial farms that are being opening up. And because of the fact that we live in a capitalist country, obviously, um, when you're um, creating a business, you want to get the word out. And so it ends up dominating a lot of the media coverage, because if you're growing for your family or a community, there's not so much of a need to make sure everyone knows, you know, what you're doing and how. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are really some wonderful um more commercial enterprises, not nonprofit, that are doing great work around um, creating space for people to come together and to see how food is grown, doing wonderful educational kind of things within communities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are, um, you know, a wonderful um, growing kind of push towards school gardens here in New York City as well. Yes, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now that I have a a little one myself, you know, I'm excited about the opportunities that that gives as well, you know, for students to really be able to understand um, botany and other subjects Mm -hmm. in a real tactile way and a practical way. Um, So that's wonderful, too. And it provides um, job opportunities for people who are coming out of farm school, you know, to run these kinds Mm -hmm. of programs and educational opportunities. Yeah. I mean, it, I, it's interesting to talk about the schools because as like a millennial, quote unquote, or whatever, we're like, I feel very disconnected from where food comes from. And I don't think I even remember like as a kid learning anything about like farming or where food comes from or anything about growing any other than like my parents having a garden. My dad like grew carrots and stuff, but and we had like a yard, but there was nothing like in the curriculum about it or anything. And so like, why is it important to teach about this stuff? And also like, 
what kind of reactions do you get? Because I feel like a lot of people are just either they think it's boring, right? Or they're like, oh my God, I'm so lazy. I don't want to learn about this. I don't want to grow my own food. Like I just want to buy something cheap. Well, I would say as your mom's probably told you, you are what you eat, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, food is so fundamental to who we are uh, on a physical level um, and also on a, on a cultural level that it's the easiest entry point to so many things um, in terms of our society that's going wrong and ways that we can make them right. So I think about environmentalism in particular, people who, and I, I see a fair amount of millennials, mm -hmm. uh, people in your age group who really care about the planet, right, and are really concerned about um, global warming or at least um, the environment in general and the ways that we might be polluting it. And the farming, the, the agribusiness and the commercial agriculture is one of the main culprits in terms of what is happening, uh, the degradation of our soils and our water on this planet. Um, in addition, I think that um, there are just so many um, labor issues that are involved with farming as well. And I think um, learning a, a bit more about the labor it takes to grow our foods give us a deeper appreciation of the people doing that work. Um, often, really, um, there's there are a lot of problems in terms of undocumented peoples and the ways they've been treated and mm -hmm. really acting at almost like indigenous servants, just uh, a new way of slavery. And I think unless we really understand deeply what that work is like um, in our bodies by doing it ourselves a little bit, we don't really have a sense of what's going on for them in terms of what it's like to work in the, under those conditions um, and for so little wages and with so little protection. So I think that's another reason to just understand a little bit better what's going on with our food system. So ideally, um, maybe the answer is farm school. But what do you hope, like, what would you do if you could change everything and make it, um, like, you know, about the food system and about food justice and just, like, make everything the way that y you believe it should be? <laughs> First of all, farm school is always the answer. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> um, some of the things that I think about, uh, just because I'm, I, I work with people who are who are farmers, um, is um, lack of access to capital and land are huge, mm -hmm. and I think that these are um, become even more difficult with uh, farmers of color who traditionally don't have some of the um, financial backings, uh, ge generational backings of their parents to be able to um, rely upon in terms of, you know, maybe they can take a mortgage on a house. You know, often we don't have those types of additional supports. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a lot of um, farmland that is going to be transitioned out of an older generation's hand into a younger one's. And um, there are a lot of people who don't have um, heirs to that land and are thinking about ways that they might be able to pass it on to people who want to do this work. Um, and they won't be passing it on to their sons and daughters. What if they looked at, you know, uh, farmers of color or people who are not from their communities and thought about ways that they might be able to work with them to bring them back onto land to be able to Able to repair some of the damages that we've um, experienced in our country in the past. So I'm excited about ideas like that, working with um, people from uh, maybe generations of wealth that might want to reallocate some of that wealth in ways that can serve our communities. I think that would be dynamite. There's some very simple things that uh, we can do in terms of um, 
forgiving some um, loans and debt for young mm-hmm. farmers. Um, I think that farming is a public service and there are ways that we can really um, demonstrate that in practical ways, uh, relieving some educational debt for farmers, which is such a big deal. If you're already, if you've gone to college and you already are $70,000 in debt, it's really hard for you to think about taking out another loan to, you know, mm-hmm. um, have a tractor or invest in some land. So things that like would that. be really interesting. Yeah, forgiveness for farmers. Um, And I think that all of us really, you know, I, I my work is to bring people who are very interested in um, learning sustainable agriculture um, from each other, uh, to bring them together into a space where they can learn from each other and learn from people a little further down the path from them. Um, So I think that um, really encouraging people to find connections um, and to get their hands in the dirt is the way forward. I think that's how the revolution is going to be born. Yeah, (laughs) Because I am a crazy farmer lady. (laughs) That's the kind of thing that we think. Um, But I I do think that, you know, we have to think globally and act locally. And that's one way we can really do it. So, folks, there are a lot of ways to look at the huge problems in the food system. And this is by no means an exhaustive investigation of it. But I hope it inspires you to question what you're eating and how it ends up on your plate. Making choices about what we consume is one of the most direct and tangible ways we can signal what we value. If you have the time and money and access, consider looking into getting a community-supported agriculture box or visit a local farmer's market. You can talk directly to the people who grow the food that sustains you, which is pretty wild when you think about it. Farmers are kind of like celebrities. I'm serious. Get on their Instagrams. Finally, something that feels like it would have the most impact is what came up in my conversation with Amani, reparations. There is like an actual bill, HR 40, which is a a commission to study reparations proposals and to create a debt forgiveness program for farmers affected by discrimination. And but there's also this Heal Food Alliance and people can check this out online and the Movement for Black Lives platform, they both offer different pathways for land reparations and a just food system. And so like the reparations is a thing that I would highly, highly, highly advocate for. And we also have on our website, uh, it's more of a people to people reparations map where we've already seen like the turnover of maybe like, I don't know if it was three or six farms at this point, but the website's only, the portion of the website's only been up for about two months. And just like, instead of waiting for the government to decide, people are just actually saying, hey, I have land. What do you need? Oh, cool. The H.R. 40 bill is only asking to develop a commission to study what might happen if our country did decide to offer reparations. And yet it's still not gotten very far. The bill is sponsored by Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas. See if your local congressperson has done anything to further this effort. And if they haven't, make sure they know you aren't happy about it. If you're not up for political agitation, though, Onika has one idea I think all of us could manage to do. I think what I would ask everyone to do is the next time you open your mouth and pop something in it, just give a thought to who might have grown that and how it was grown. And think about that as a source of your power. 
not only is it creating the body that you are inhabiting right now, it's also creating the society that you're living in, right? The systems that undergird the food that we eat are creating the society that we're living in. They're creating the planet that we're living in. And if we can have a more conscious approach to how we eat, um, it really will change the, the way that we treat each other and treat this planet. Everyone deserves healthy food, and if we're denying access to land and resources to the people that want to grow it for us, what are we left with? Thank you for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money, this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who work in community gardens and farm their own food. Wow, cool. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell, Sam Dingman, and Cameron Drews. We're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm, of course, Gabby Dunn, and I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>